Our speaker today is Dr. Rebecca Klink from UT's Department of Anthropology. And she's going to talk about Bad Feminists by Roxanne Gay. Are we all a little bit squirmy about whether we fit that bill? <laughs> Dr. Very much for inviting me here today. I'm excited to come and discuss Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist. As you heard, I'm an anthropologist. I'm actually a cultural anthropologist at UT. And yes, I'm a feminist. Um, I write and teach about gender in the US and abroad. So you could say that inside and outside of work, I'm all about feminism, but I'm also always screwing it up. And even just the banality of overflowing kitchen garbage on a busy evening can provoke me to serious transgressive demands of my husband to the tune of, I'm not going to empty it, otherwise why did I marry a man? This is a really bad joke. I know that. It's professional malpractice, and sometimes I get accused of that when I, when I carry it out. Um, there's more that goes much deeper, but that's enough. Um, so in all honesty, the first thing that grabbed me about this book was the provocative pink title, Bad Feminist. Um, I, I don't actually share Roxanne Gay's enthusiasm for pink. I'm wearing this sweater today as an experiment because people tell me I would look good in pink and I thought, well, today's the day to try it out. So I don't share her enthusiasm for pink. Does that make me a good feminist? Um, does being the middle class straight white woman whose interests have historically been served by dominant forms of capital F feminism make me a good feminist? Um, I suppose that's theoretically possible, but I struggle with that. So anyway, I viewed the author's excellent Confessions of a Bad Feminist, that's her TED Talk, to decide whether or not I'd find this book interesting, and I bought it immediately. If you're here to decide whether or not you want to read this book, whether or not you'll find it interesting, let me cut to my punchline right away. You, you do want to read this book. You will find it interesting. And yes, you do want to see the TED Talk. The TED Talk is, is also fantastic. Now, one of the confessions made quite early on in Bad Feminist when Gay reflects upon her first year as a college professor is that she, like me, is afraid of public speaking. She writes about day one um, of her first academic job, 10 minutes before my first class, I run to the bathroom and vomit. I'm afraid of public speaking, and that makes teaching complicated. Um, but in that TED Talk, my gosh, she makes afraid of public speaking look amazing. No paper notes, no podium. I mean, I can that. So she's conquered her fear of speaking. And I may feel slightly less guilty about the pleasure I feel reading the disturbingly violent Hunger Games with my son when I read it a few years back with him, when I learned that Gay also admires the brave and flawed Katniss Everdeen. I don't know if anyone in here has read the Hunger Games, so some of you are familiar with Katniss. Um, so I think Katniss rocks. I have sometimes felt a little bit guilty about that, but it was, it was a nice moment to be affirmed. Um, so like many of the books that I read for work, I was drawn to Bad Feminist from more of a personal standpoint. Gay's Bad Feminism, um, her fear of public speaking were affirming for this particular feminist academic. 
And I was hooked as soon as I got to her explanation of why she embraces the label of bad feminist on page three of her introduction. By the way, her introduction is entitled Feminism, parentheses, and period, plural, which also hooked me. Um, because, of course, there are many feminisms, and I thought Gay's title expressed that so much more elegantly than the academic sentences I often find myself using. Um, Gay embraces the bad feminist label because, and let me uh, just read from her book, I'm going to do that quite a bit today. I embrace the label of bad feminist because I am human. I am messy. I am not trying to be an example. I am not trying to be perfect. I am not trying to say I have all the answers. I am not trying to say I am right. I am just trying, trying to support what I believe in trying to do some good in this world, trying to make some noise with my writing while also being myself. A woman who loves pink and likes to get freaky and sometimes dance her ass off to music she knows, she knows is terrible for women. And who sometimes plays dumb with the repairman because it's just easier to let them feel macho than it is to stand on the moral high ground. I am a bad feminist because I never want to be placed on a feminist pedestal. People who are placed on pedestals are expected to pose perfectly. Then they get knocked off when they fuck it up. I regularly fuck it up. Consider me already knocked off. Make of this what you will, but as I was reading, I wrote in the margin, so freeing, exclamation point. And perhaps this is one of my favorite aspects of the book, is the way that it addresses head-on um, the hesitant dancing around identifying with feminism that I encounter frequently among my students, many of whom generally, generally align with a sort of I'm not feminist but approach. Um, and Gay goes on to introduce her feminism, again in her words, I try to keep my feminism simple. I know feminism is complex and evolving and flawed. I know feminism will not and cannot fix everything. I believe in equal opportunities for women and men. I believe in women having reproductive freedom and affordable and unfettered access to health care, the health care they need. I believe women should be paid as much as men for doing the same work. Feminism is a choice, and if a woman does not want to be a feminist, that's her right. But it is still my responsibility to fight for her rights. I believe feminism is grounded in supporting the choices of women, even if we wouldn't make those choices for ourselves. I believe women, not just in the United States, but throughout the world, deserve equality and freedom. But I know that I am in no position to tell women of other cultures what that equality and freedom should look like. Gay is frank in her assessment of the shortcomings of the feminist project, or capital F, feminism. Um, she says, women of color, queer women, and transgender women need to be better included in the feminist project. Women from these groups have been shamefully abandoned by capital F, feminism, time and again. Feminism has historically been far more invested in improving the lives of heterosexual white women to the detriment of all others. We don't all have to believe in the same feminism. Feminism will better succeed with collective effort, but feminist success can also rise out of personal conduct. Feminism never means just one thing. It's full of contradictions. And Gay explores 
uh, these contradictions through a series of essays on life and popular culture that are very, uh, speak very well to our times. Um, she engages everything from the Hunger Games to rape culture to competitive Scrabble to her favorite color pink to trigger warnings with, with verb and really just razor sharp wit. Um, and she blends intimate personal narrative and astute cultural analysis into what I find to be an incredibly powerful statement about the relevance of feminism. Um, bad feminists really continued to push and pull at me long after I had finished reading. And in pondering how to discuss with you all this sometimes hilarious and oftentimes gut-wrenching book, I thought I'd briefly share the author's bio and some recent Roxanne Gay news to place her work in a broader context, and then discuss just a few of the many questions and connections some of the essays in her book mapped for me. Um, so Gay describes herself as the daughter of conservative, professional, migrant, Haitian parents, parents who shaped a comfortable middle-class lifestyle for Roxanne and her siblings, regularly attended church, and closely supervised the academic diligence and success of their children. She went on to earn an MA in English from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and a PhD in rhetoric and technical communication from Michigan Technological University. Gay now works at Purdue University where she's an associate professor of English. She teaches creative writing, and her professional website indicates that her research interests include the political novel and the intersections of difference, um, such as race, gender identity, sexuality, ability, class, in popular culture. As I'll discuss, all these interests are closely examined through the essays in Bad Feminist, and Gay's writings have been published in a variety of very prestigious venues, uh, she's also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. <coughs> Best-selling Bad Feminist is neither her only nor her first book. So her first book, Aiti, was a collection of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry that reflected on the experiences of people in the Haitian diaspora. That came out in 2011, the year after she finished grad school. Then in 2014, she had a bumper year, Bad Feminist came out, but also An Untamed State, which is a sort of tweaked version of the fairy tale format that provides a powerful critique of violence against women. Hunger, which is a memoir, is scheduled to come out later this year. And a collection of short stories entitled Difficult Women has just recently come out. She also wrote World of Wakanda for Marvel. So lots of different types and styles of writing for different audiences. And in a bold move, Gay recently pulled her forthcoming book, How to Be Heard, from the publisher Simon & Schuster when she learned that Milo Yiannopoulos had a $250,000 book deal with that same publisher. Um, she reported to BuzzFeed News on January 25th I was supposed to turn in the book this month, and I kept thinking about how egregious it is to give someone like Milo a platform for his blunt, inelegant hate and provocation. I just couldn't bring myself to turn the book in. My editor emailed me last week, and I kept staring at that email in my inbox, and finally over the weekend, I asked my agent to pull the book. She elaborates, and to be clear, this isn't about censorship. Milo has every right to say what he wants to say. 
however distasteful I and many others find it to be. He does not have a right to a book published by a major publisher, but he has, in some bizarre twist of fate, been afforded that privilege. So be it. I'm not interested in doing business with a publisher willing to grant him that privilege. I'm also fortunate enough to be in a position to make this decision. I recognize that other writers aren't, and I understand that completely. She still hopes to publish the book. The next day, as it happened, the New York Times Book Review published an interview about what she likes to read, um, which I thought might be appropriate to share in, in this particular setting. So to conclude our introduction to Roxanne Gay, I'll share just a few highlights. Um, in the interview, Gay shares that she basically loves reading things that make her feel the same way she feels when listening to Beyonce. Slave. So I, I just love that. Um, her books said that she was reading, or, or the books that she said she was reading or threatening to read back in January included I'm Judging You by Lovey Ajayi, um, Made for Love by Alyssa Nutting, The Fireman by Joe Hill, Swing Time by Zadie Smith, All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie, Charlie Jane Anders, Blackwater Rising by Attica Locke, the Wangs Versus the World by Jay Chang, Thrill Me by Benjamin Percy, and The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen. And the last great book she, she says that she read was Commonwealth by Ann Patchett. In the interview, Gay explains, she's one of my favorite writers. I love the ambitious, almost too ambitious narrative structure of the novel and these little worlds she kept building and tearing down to move the story forward. The book is also set in Los Angeles, one of my favorite cities. My personal favorite point in the interview was Gay's reply when asked what book she would require the president to read. Remember, this is late January, so there's just been a change, right? Um, and she says, frankly, President Obama is well-read and wouldn't have needed my advice, though vainly, I would love it, love it if he read something I wrote. I would require the new president to read well, any book at all, because he does not give the impression that he has ever read a book. I'd offer recommendations, but anything I might suggest is well beyond his reading level, alas. That was my favorite quote from the, from the, um, from the interview. So now let's delve back into our book um, that's, that's the subject of discussion for today, um, Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist. There's just so much to say and so much to discuss in this book. Um, as I've said, I'll, just, I'll discuss just a few of the many questions and connections that, that her book raised for me. Um, as I go along, I'll, I'll note some of those questions, and perhaps we can discuss them during the Q&A afterwards, if, if that's interesting for you all. Um, the essays are grouped into a few sections. The first section is entitled Me, followed by a section entitled Gender and Sexuality. Um, then comes race and entertainment, followed by politics, gender, and race. And lastly, she concludes with a section that returns to her own self-reflections, entitled Back to Me. Um, I'd like to begin by engaging with her second essay in the first me section, um, entitled Peculiar Benefits. Um, this essay offers a meditation on the rich complicated and thorny concepts of privilege and intersectionality. These are concepts I also use in my teaching. 
Peculiar Benefits briefly recounts the author's childhood trips to Haiti during the summers, a homecoming for her parents, but more of a mixed bag for Gay and her brothers. She writes that the experience was an adventure, sometimes a chore, and always a necessary education on privilege and the grace of an American passport. Until I visited Haiti, I had no idea what poverty really was or the difference between relative and absolute poverty. Gay notes that this education on privilege began well before she could meaningfully appreciate it and follows up with a meditation on privilege as relative and contextual and its implications for intersecting dimensions of, of her own identity. Um, intersecting dimensions of identity is also called sometimes by the term intersectionality. So I'd like to read some of her reflections on privilege. Privilege is a right or immunity granted as a peculiar benefit, advantage, or favor. There is racial privilege, gender and identity privilege, heterosexual privilege, economic privilege, able-bodied privilege, educational privilege, religious privilege, and the list goes on and on. At some point, you have to surrender to the kinds of privilege you hold. Nearly everyone, particularly in the developed world, has something someone else doesn't, something someone else yearns for. The problem is, cultural critics talk about privilege with, with such alarming frequency and in such empty ways, we have diluted the word's meaning. And people wield the word privilege, and when people wield the word privilege, it tends to fall on deaf ears, because we hear the word so damn much it has become white noise. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do is accept and acknowledge my own privilege. It's an ongoing project. I'm a woman, a person of color, and the child of immigrants, but I also grew up middle class and then upper middle class. My parents raised my siblings and me in a strict but loving environment. They were and are happily married, so I don't have to deal with divorce or crappy intermarital dynamics. I attended elite schools. My master's and doctoral degrees were funded. I got a tenure track position my first time out. My bills are paid. I have time and resources for frivolity. I am reasonably well published. It's also really difficult for me to consider the ways in which I lack privilege, or the ways in which my privilege hasn't magically rescued me from a world of hurt. On my more difficult days, I'm not sure which is more of a pain in my ass, being black or being a woman. I'm happy to be both of these things, but the world keeps intervening. Surrendering to the acceptance of privilege is difficult, but it is really all that's expected. When I remind myself regularly, what I remind myself regularly is this, the acknowledgement of my privilege is not a denial of the ways I have been and am marginalized, the ways that I have suffered. You don't necessarily have to do anything once you acknowledge your privilege. You don't have to apologize for it. You need to understand the extent of your privilege, the consequences of your privilege, and remain aware that people who are different from you move through and experience the world in ways you may never know anything about. They might endure situations you can never know anything about. You could, however, use that privilege for the greater good, to try to level the playing field for everyone, to work for social justice, 
to bring attention to how those without certain privileges are disenfranchised. This section concludes by raising what, for me, is a really useful question. Does privilege automatically negate the merits of what a privilege holder has to say? And noting that few people in the U.S. have no privilege at all. In our ongoing national context of racial violence, symbolic, structural, physical, dealing with the repulsive ramifications of deeply entrenched unequal forms of privilege is vital, but frank discussions continue to be difficult and feel quite risky. I really admire the way Gay makes herself vulnerable in an effort to move this conversation forward. What privileges you? In what ways are you accountable to your privilege? Indeed, the illusion of safety is a recurring theme in this collection, which Gay addresses from different angles and different places in the book, including a deeply personal account of gang rape. But it's also directly addressed in an essay in the gender and sexuality section, The Illusion of Safety, the Safety of Illusion. And here, Gay deals with an issue that, that, that spoke clearly to me. It's a hot-button issue for college faculty. Trigger warnings, yes or no? Um, in case you're not familiar with these, some college professors volunteer or feel pressured to use trigger warnings for students um, to warn them that course material might be upsetting. But trigger warnings are also used as protective guidelines for material on the internet, about which Gay writes, many feminists, many feminist communities online use trigger warnings, particularly when discussing rape, sexual abuse, and violence. She elaborates that in so doing, these communities are trying to make a virtual safe space where members will be protected from unexpected reminders of their histories. Um, and she asserts members of these communities are given the illusion that they can be protected. So I want to, again, return to her own text here. Um, so she continues. There are a great many potential trigger warnings. Over the years, I have seen trigger warnings for eating disorders, poverty, self-injury, bullying, heteronormativity, suicide, sizeism, genocide, slavery, mental illness, explicit fiction, explicit discussions of sexuality, homosexuality, homophobia, addiction, alcoholism, racism, the Holocaust, ableism, and Dan Savage. <laughs> Life apparently requires a trigger warning. This is the un uncomfortable truth. Everything is a trigger for someone. There are things you cannot tell just by looking at a person. We all have history. You can think you are over your history. You can think the past is past. And then something happens, often innocuous, that shows you how far you are from over it. The past is always with you. Some people want to be protected from this truth. And so Roxanne Gay doesn't personally believe in trigger warnings, arguing that I don't believe people can be protected from their histories. I don't believe it is at all possible to anticipate the histories of others. When used extensively, trigger warnings, she asserts, begin to feel a little like censorship. Do trigger warnings allow people to avoid learning how to deal with triggers, as Gay suggests? 
I don't believe in safety. I wish I did. I'm not brave. I simply know what to be scared of. I know to be scared of everything, she discloses. <laughs> but, she says, trigger warnings aren't meant for people who don't believe in them. Rather, they're intended for true believers, people who believe that they can be kept safe. And perhaps she suggests non-believers should just leave well enough alone. But she concludes by adding, but still, there will always be a finger on the trigger. No matter how hard we try, there's no way to step out of the line of fire. Are you a believer in trigger warnings? So now I'll turn to two essays um, in the politics, gender, and race section um, that I think are interesting because they sit sort of squarely in the line of fire that she identifies. Um, the first is entitled and addresses the politics of respectability, which Gay describes as the idea that if black or other marginalized people simply behave in culturally approved ways, if we mimic the dominant culture, it will be more difficult to suffer the effects of racism. Like Gay, I'm very frustrated by this strand in racial thinking in the U.S., which reduces the social and historical complexity of racism to discrimination or unjust treatment based on the recognition of difference. Respectability politics ignores the ways in which racial discrimination is systemic. It builds across history. And as Gay argues, also ignored are the ways in which racism is institutionalized through our schools, our government social welfare policies, our criminal justice system, and housing projects, just to name a few key sites, that privilege whiteness, stigmatize blackness, and reinforce problems faced by African Americans and other communities of color. Respectability politics neglects the ways in which racism is deeply embedded in our social structures across time. For example, inequality in housing connects with inequality in schooling, which connects with a tougher struggle to land secure employment and inequality in income and wealth, which connects back to inequality in housing. Respectability politics does not recognize that discrimination is embedded in complicated racial ideologies that make racism seem natural and normal. These ideologies have shifted over time, but consistently serve the interests of those socially construed as white at any particular time. And Gay makes some suggestions that I'd like to turn to. So she writes, we are having an ongoing and critical conversation about race in America. The question on many minds, the question that is certainly on my mind, is how do we prevent racial injustices from happening? How do we protect young black children? How do we overcome so many of the institutional barriers that, that exacerbate racism and poverty? It's a nice idea that we could simply follow a prescribed set of rules and make the world a better place for all. It's a nice idea that racism is a finite problem for which there is a finite solution and that respectability, perhaps, could have saved all the people who lost their lives to the effects of racism. 
But we don't live in that world, and it's dangerous to suggest that the targets of oppression are wholly responsible for ending that oppression. Respectability politics suggests that there's a way for us all to be model, read, like white, citizens. We can always be better, but will we ever be ideal? Do we even want to be ideal, or is there a way for us to become more comfortably human? Respectability politics are not the answer to ending racism, she writes. Racism doesn't care about respectability, wealth, education, or status. And then she notes uh, a speech, a historic speech made by President Obama. In July 2013, President Obama made a historic speech about race. Obama's ideas place the responsibility for change on all of us. We are, after all, supposed to be one nation, indivisible. Only if we act as such might we truly begin to be able to effect change. So what concrete steps might be involved? What are some ways forward? The Alienable Rights of Women offers a discussion of, you can probably guess it, reproductive rights and politics. Gay argues that the, the, quote, female problem is something like an old-fashioned witch hunt or a smokescreen created by mostly conservative politicians who have reintroduced abortion and birth control into the national debate, perhaps in order to avoid addressing the real problems the U.S. faces, which she summarizes as economic devastation for significant sectors of the population, an increasing gap between haves and have-nots, a ballooning debt crisis that ranges from consumer debt uh, to, to student loan debt, um, the structural and institutionalized racism just discussed, lack of full civil rights for gay, lesbian, and transgender people, lack of universal access to health care, consistent military engagement and global security threats, and so on. Um, with regard to abortion in particular, um, gay rights, let me again share her, her own words with you all. If you think you're free from restrictions, think again. In 2011, 55% of all women of reproductive age in the U.S. lived in states hostile to abortion rights and reproductive freedom. Waiting periods, counseling, ultrasounds, transvaginal ultrasounds, sonogram storytelling, all of these legislative moves are invasive, insulting, and condescending because they are deeply misguided attempts to pressure women into changing their minds, to pressure women into not terminating their pregnancies, as if women are so easily swayed that such petty and cruel tactics will work. It is not a decision taken lightly, and if a woman does take the decision lightly, well, that is her right. A woman should always have the right to choose what she does with her body. It is frustrating that this needs to be said repeatedly. Then she goes on to further develop her, her smokescreen political analysis. This debate is a smokescreen, but it is a very deliberate and dangerous smokescreen. It is dangerous because this current debate shows us that reproductive freedom is negotiable. Reproductive freedom is a talking point. Reproductive freedom is a campaign issue. Reproductive freedom can be repealed or restricted. 
Reproductive freedom is not an inalienable right, even though it should be. The United States, as we know it, was founded on the principle of inalienable rights. The idea that some rights are so sacrosanct, not even a government can take them away. Of course, this country's founding fathers were only thinking of wealthy white men when they codified this principle, but still, it's a nice idea that there are some freedoms that cannot be taken away. What this debate shows us is that even in this day and age, the rights of women are not inalienable. Our rights can be and are, with alarming regularity, stripped away. I struggle to accept that my body is a legislative matter. The truth of this fact makes it difficult for me to breathe. I don't feel like I have inalienable rights. I don't feel free. I don't feel like my body is my own. There is no freedom in any circumstance where the body is legislated, none at all. She finds current conversations about birth control inexplicable. In 2017, some women have to explain and justify why they are taking birth control, really? And discusses a topic that we just recently addressed in a UT gender studies class. Men don't take responsibility for birth control or allow their bodies to become focal points for legislative control. There is no incentive for pharmaceutical companies to develop a male version of the pill. I mean fatigue, bloating, headaches. Who wants to suffer that, right? <laughs> I laughed when Gay disclosed that one of her favorite moments in the development of a relationship is if a guy asks if she's on the pill. Her reply, no, are you? <laughs> she ponders whether all of this is indeed a smokescreen, or are these politicians actually serious? And envisions an underground birth control network to prepare for the worst. Are your rights inalienable? In what ways are you accountable for the state of your rights? What is your point of entry into this debate? So just to wrap up here, what I want to do is read a series of, of quotes that I'm going to kind of bring together um, from the last essay in her collection, Bad Feminist Take Two. This is just a few pages long. It's also, if you've looked up the book in preparation for coming today, it's the most quoted part of the book and the publicity that surrounds it. So if you've had a look at this book, you'll be familiar with some of this. Um, but, but probably it deserves to be the most quoted part. So Roxane Gay concludes by shifting the focus of the book back to her personal struggle with feminism. Um, and she declares, there are many ways in which I am doing feminism wrong. I want to be independent, but I want to be taken care of and have someone to come home to. I want to be strong and professional, but I resent how hard I have to work to be taken seriously. I read Vogue, and I am not doing it ironically, though it may seem that way. <laughs> I know nothing about cars. I don't want to be good at cars. I very much like men. I'm not even sure what the sisterhood is, but the idea of a sisterhood menaces me and quietly reminds me of how bad a feminist I am. I worry about dying alone, unmarried, and childless because I spent so much time pursuing my career and accumulating my degrees. My success is supposed to be enough if I'm a good feminist. 
It is not enough. It is not even close. Maybe I'm a bad feminist, but I am deeply committed to the issues important to the feminist movement. I am as committed to fighting fiercely for equality as I am committed to disrupting the notion that there is an essential feminism. At some point I got it into my head that a feminist was a certain kind of woman. I bought into grossly inaccurate myths about who feminists are, militant, perfect in their politics and person, man-hating, humorless. Intellectually, I know better. No matter what issues I have with feminism, I am a feminist. I cannot and will not deny the importance and absolute necessity of feminism. Are you a good feminist? Bad feminist? No feminist at all? Do you have issues with feminism? Find it absolutely necessary? Um, if any of these things, or all of them, I really recommend that you read Bad Feminist. And that's what I have to say about it today. So if anyone would like to ask questions or make comments, or I am a feminist. I've been looking at this question for a very long time. And I'm puzzled by why we have to draw lines around the word and decide who fits inside of it. So I, I think that part of what um, Roxanne Gay is trying to do with this book is, is tangle with the issue that you just raised. But on the other hand, another thing that she is trying to point out is that there are many points of entry into this thing called feminism that many of us may call ourselves feminists for, for different reasons and relate to feminism in different ways, depending on different aspects of our own identities. What might be important feminist struggles for, for me personally, for example, I could cite the wage gap. You know, I, I hate that, that, that you know, women doctorates at, at UT are in, in some fields paid less than men with similar qualifications. So that might be something that's important to me from where I stand, but that the that kind of an issue might not be the only or even an especially important feminist issue for someone whose position in society differs from my own, for someone who might be more concerned with the basic survival of her family, for example. Other comments, questions? Thanks for the great introduction to the book. Um, two things occurred to me. One was when you were talking about trigger warnings and whether we can be safe from history, our own histories. And I was reminded of last night's presentation where there was a really strong message from women of color about the importance of knowing the history of this country and the history of slavery and the history of race in this country, which reminded me of James Baldwin's remark that the history of people of, of he said the, the history of black people in this country is the history of this country. So when I think about trigger warnings, I think of, there's there's the interpersonal you know do I want to walk into the room and know what I'm going to be exposed to there, which I think is really different from what is our obligation or responsibility to know the history of this country, which as someone else said last night is being scrubbed from history textbooks. Anything that's critical of the United States is being removed from public school textbooks, including the history of slavery. So the trigger warning thing makes me think about trigger warnings for the culture as a whole. 
The other thing is that as you were describing the book, I was thinking, I think she's being ironic about bad feminist. Yeah. No, I don't think she's a bad feminist. I think she's a human being who, like all of us, is struggling with how do I be authentically myself and get the um, inalienable rights that I think I'm entitled to, and how do I advocate for other women to get the inalienable rights they're entitled to. And the reading Vogue is, I'm, I'm reminded of, I don't know if this is still current, maybe you know, people used to talk about lipstick feminists. Mm -hmm. So feminists who like to dress up and wear high heels and perform on makeup, and people said, that's not feminist. If you're a feminist, you wouldn't do that. So this is a conversation that's been going on for a long time. And I wonder if you think, is she, with all this self-disclosure in the book about how she thinks she's not a good feminist, do you think she's being ironic? My sense was that in, in some ways she was. And my sense is also that she is pushing back against the idea of, against this sort of false idea of what feminism is, right? Of, of That feminism is capital F feminism, that it speaks specifically and best to, to issues of white, middle class or elite heterosexual women, and saying, A, I'm a bad feminist because I fall outside that particular strand of feminism, and I situate myself within other strands of feminism. But also, I, I absolutely think she's being ironic. I think that she seems to have a self-awareness of being a, a good feminist, but putting this out there to engage all of us in conversation um, and thinking about what does it mean to be on board with the issues that feminist, feminism stands for as you see them. What does it mean to struggle with those things? I find, personally, I've been a feminist for a long time, and I have always struggled with that. I, it is, I find feminism to be hard and difficult and a source of struggle. I find engaging with feminists to be something that's very challenging, um, in a good way, intellectual work. And I think that bad feminist is, is sort of a challenge to think more deeply and creatively about feminism and a way of, of sort of positioning herself to open that discussion. But thanks for that. Thanks for that comment. Yeah, and just to expand on that a little bit, um, I, I thought the same thing. That, you know, she really wasn't thinking of herself as, as bad or fem feminism being bad. But the, those ways that she defines feminism in a bad way seem to be those things that people who have been threatened by feminism define feminism. And, and you know, and I think that that's been uh, their way, the, the people who have been threatened, of trying to intimidate women and, and make women step back and think, oh, gee, you know, maybe I, you know, maybe I shouldn't be. And, I mean, some, sure, some women probably do hate <clears throat> men. I mean, they're like, you know, there's there's all kinds of there is no one definition of feminism, but um, it, it, just, it just seemed interesting to me that um, those those definitions of feminism are not the, the true definition, but it, they're the ones that I think people who are threatened by feminism want us want to put out there. Yeah, which is such an excellent point, right? Because the negative stereotypes of feminism that, that, that she's working with when, when she talks about her own struggles to connect to feminism a play do a lot of, as, as I like to say in classes, they do a, they, they do a lot of social work. Um, those stereotypes are productive. They make it, they, they, they 
make it so that people are less likely to want to identify with feminism or want to identify as feminist and create the whole kind of pushback of, well, I'm not feminist, but, right? And if that's a feminist thing, that's not for me. What does that do that helps maintain the status quo, right? And with systemic gender inequality. Thank you so much for a marvelous introduction to the book and very Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.